It's Thursday, July 28, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Brodis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, Let's begin by discussing the ongoing fallout of Assembly Bill 5 uh, passed in Sacramento prior to the pandemic in 2019. The law mandates that independent contractors that are essential to a company's operation must be classified as employees, reclassified as employees. This has had ramifications for the trucking industry, where a majority of operators have been historically independent and do not want to unionize or become employees of a company. Uh, Last week, truckers have protested in California's various ports and even forced the closure of the Port of Oakland uh, last Thursday. Gentlemen, uh, and I'll start with you, Lee. uh, Given supply chain disruptions, uh, record rates of inflation, and and a uh, recession that seems looming, will Governor Newsom do anything to substantially modify this law? Jonathan, I don't think so. He didn't modify it at the height of the pandemic um, when it was really threatening a lot of livelihoods and when people who were getting laid off from jobs um, could have taken up things like, hey, I think I'll be a gig worker. I think I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll deliver meals, including delivering meals to, to those high risk people, including the elderly. He didn't do anything like it. He didn't do anything then. So I don't think he'll do anything now. And it's a real shame because uh, when AB5 was passed, um, I wrote for, uh, for the, the joint product that Bill and I do, California on Your Mind, uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, if people would like to check that out. I wrote that it was the worst law passed um, and that it was a law in search of a problem. There was absolutely no reason whatsoever to, to pass this law. It stands in the way of people trying to make a living. It is a law that forbids people. It makes it illegal for them to be independent contractors. It forces them into becoming an employee. And uh, what's really problematic about this um, is that we've known for years from a number of Bureau of Labor Statistics studies that virtually everybody who works as an independent contractor does that because they want to be an independent contractor. It's not as if they're pining away to be an employee. They do it for many, many reasons. But over 80% of people who are surveyed, when they're asked, would you, do you prefer being an independent contractor or would you like to be a full-time worker, full-time worker? Over 80% say they want to be an independent contractor. And so AB5 took that away from everyone, except at the time when it was passed, except for professional groups who are well represented with very effective lobbyists in Sacramento, such as uh, dentists and physicians and attorneys and realtors. But then there was so much pushback on AB5 that it had to be modified. And who else was exempted at that time? Uh, Landscape architects were exempted because after all, architects were exempted. So why wouldn't you exempt landscape architects? So landscape architects were exempted. Uh, professional foresters were exempted. Real estate appraisers and home inspectors were exempted. Um, people who were engaged in arts and music and writing were exempted. But this really calls into question about, well, if you have to weave in so many exemptions, then why did you pass the law in the first place? My favorite, my absolute favorite is that tow truck drivers affiliated with AAA were exempt from AB5, meaning that they could work as independent contractors, but tow truck, tow truck drivers who were not affiliated with AAA could not work as independent contractors. Um, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense. With trucking, these truckers want to be independent contractors. They don't want to be employees. Um, 
And this is a huge problem because we do have a supply chain issue and this is really making it more problematic. It's really slowing stuff down at the ports. This has been going on for months now. Uh, and again, this really shows, I think in my opinion, a lack of political leadership, a lack of common sense uh, among those making laws and signing laws in the state of California. And Jonathan, when you asked me first, is Newsom going to do anything about it? I suspect, as I mentioned, I suspect he won't. Um, the whole thing should be tossed out. Uh, a second best would be to go ahead and exempt exempt truck drivers. Um, and hopefully, if he did that, hopefully that would open the door towards making this thing just dry up and blow away. It's, um, it's, an, it's a horrible law. It is. Uh, uh, two groups that Lee didn't mention that also got uh, carve-outs were uh, musicians. The entertainment industry screamed loudly when this happened. So uh, musicians were uh, granted a break from uh, reprieve from AB5, and so were freelancers. And I, I got to test this personally, Lee and Jonathan. I write for the Washington Post. I'm a freelancer. I had to form an LLC for a time being uh, to keep writing for the Post. Uh, so AB5 complicated all sorts of people's lives. But uh, the reason why we're talking about it, as Lee referenced, is uh, AB5 came roaring back into California uh, recently with uh, uh, diesel-powered 18-wheel uh, vengeance, uh, if you will. There were strikes and there were truckers uh, showed up in the ports of Los Angeles and Oakland to protest uh, AB5, uh, requiring them, uh, independent truck drivers, to be reclassified as employees. The majority of California truck drivers are owner-operated. They don't want to join unions. They, they cherish their independence. It's part of the whole ethos of trucking. You are your own man and your own woman with your own rig, and you set your own schedule, and you just don't want to be part of anybody else's uh, agenda if you will. Uh, but the reason why we got to this point is the California Trucking Association uh, filed a lawsuit after AB5 um, became law. And um, there was an injunction in place, uh, a uh, appellate court here in California reversed the injunction. It went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which did not act on it. And so AB5 is now back applying to the trucking industry. Uh, the Port of Oakland uh, said last week that uh, it'll work with Governor Lucem for a lasting solution. Uh, maybe that's the case, but likely I'm a skeptic here because I went and I looked up the Twitter feed of one Lilia Garcia Brower. Um, listeners are scratching their heads wondering who that is. She is the California Labor Commissioner, and uh, she posted the following tweet on July 12th, quote, Drivers, if you believe that you and other colleagues at the same trucking company are being misclassified as independent contractors, you could file a report of labor law violations and request an investigation from our office. Uh, there's another way to put that, which is Big Brother is watching you. That would tell me, Lee and Jonathan, that the uh, Department of Industrial Relations is looking very close at truckers and intends to come down on them if they do not unionize, if they don't uh, become employees. Uh, so why the desire to unionize in California? I'm reminded of an old joke involving Winston Churchill at Mayor, and I'd be truly or Jonathan. The story goes like this. Clement Attlee, who was the labor prime minister after Churchill, uh, he's in the men's room doing his business, uh, standing over a trough, and Churchill walks in, and he has the same intentions of going to the trough. He takes a look at uh, Attlee, and he heads to the very far reaches of the men's room. Uh, Atlee notices this and he says, feeling standoffish today, are we Winston? And Churchill replies, every time you see something big, you want to nationalize it. <laughs> the point is in California, we don't nationalize, but we sure as heck want to unionize everything. Remember, you might remember Lee and Jonathan a couple of years ago when um, uh, Democrats in Sacramento were just hell bent on uh, doing universal pre-K, big Newsom initiative. Well, you could say maybe they care about the health and welfare of four and five-year-olds. They also love the idea of the teachers rank swelling in California, and thus the California Teachers Association getting more members and more dues. That's union power. So that's what you have here, union fletching its muscle. And here's the question for you, Lee, since you're the economist on this. What if the truckers decide not to get mad, but not get even? And they could do it one of two ways, either just not do business in California, or as we're seeing with some firms already, leave California. Then I think, Lee, what we're looking at is a genuine supply chain crisis in this state. Yeah, we are. I mean, the uh, a law of business that I don't think enough California policymakers understand is that if a business can't cover its costs, it's going to shut down. It's going to go elsewhere. And that's what's going on with trucking. A lot of these independent truckers um, are Hispanics. Um, they are um, non-Hispanic whites. And, you know, again, we have a situation where um, the Democratic Party is supposed to have the backs of these folks and, um, and they don't have their backs. They're making life incredibly difficult for them. So AB5, as far as I can tell, Bill, uh, uh, AB5 is, is, is there's no intention behind it other than to try to increase union ranks 
at a time when unions continued to dry up and blow away um, outside of the public sector. So this is a devastating law. It's really, really harmed people within the state. Um, surveys show that people are moving out of California because they can't find the employment opportunities they need to compensate them for being able to live here. AB5 is just making that more difficult. Um, and, you know, Bill, if you decided, you know, for example, suppose we force all these independent truckers in formal employment relationships, um, well, that's going to end up raising costs without necessarily making these fellas any better paid or any better, any better compensated. It's just going to mean more HR people, more red tape. Um, so, again, it's just it's, it's, it's an awful bill. Um, and I suspect we will see some trucking companies leave California. But one thing is for certain, which is that our costs for everything related to trucking are going to go up. Yeah, I think that's a good call. So I think there's really only one avenue here for Californians who don't like this law, Lee. You have to go to the ballot and repeal it. And these are tricky things to do on the ballot because you get into very expensive ad wars with unions who do their best to humanize it. But I think it's a pretty good argument pushing it back against it. If you're complicating the lives of truckers and other people in California who don't want to unionize, who want to be independent operators and not employees, and maybe that's the route you go. You just overturn this thing at the ballot. I, I I hope so. It's something that needs to be put back on the ballot. Um, and I just, I, I can't imagine there's anybody outside of the organized labor ranks that thinks this is a good idea. Jim, let's move on and talk about uh, the state's water woes. Uh, Sacramento released a new proposal on Wednesday that would build one tunnel from the Sacramento River to the California aqueduct in the state south. It's a scaled uh, back version from Newsom's predecessor, Jerry Brown, would have wanted. And despite record droughts, it's still facing opposition from environmental groups. Um, Bill, given Sacramento's recent record of success on public projects, and I say so facetiously, uh, what are the prospects that this can be accomplished? Well, let's get to high-speed rail, which is I think what you're vaguely referencing uh, in a couple minutes. I want to get Lee's thoughts on that because I think he tracks that pretty closely too. Um, so Governor Newsom, uh, when he took office in 2019, said that he wanted to go ahead with a water tunnel, but whereas Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted twin tunnels running north-south, he wanted one tunnel because he wanted less environmental uh, complications. So Newsom three years later came out with a plan. It's 3,000 pages long. I will confess I did not sit down and read it. I'm just, I'm not a career masochist. I'm not going to read 3,000 pages of government gobbledygook. Um, there is uh, two problems here. Number one is going to be uh, how Newsom is going to get around environmentalists who have already uh, said the National Resources Defense Council said this actually yesterday that if this thing moves forward, they plan to sue. Uh, why? Because you're talking about how this would disrupt life along the uh, Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta. Um, we're talking about our good friends, the Chinook salmon, the steelhead, uh, trout, smelt, and so forth. Uh, so first question is going to be whether or not the proposal will actually be permitted because you have both federal and state endangered species laws uh, getting in the way of it. So that's problem number one. And problem number two, which we get into, we saw with High Speed Rail, and I'm going to get Lee's thoughts on this, is... Uh, can California actually still build big things? Because the, the plan here is to start digging on this around 2028 and do it in less than a decade. I'm very much a skeptic on this. By the way, there's a very interesting backstory here, Lee and Jonathan, in Sacramento. Um, something happened earlier this month without much fanfare. Uh, it was a resignation of a gentleman named Max Gomberg. Uh, Max Gomberg was uh, formerly the Climate and Conservation uh, Manager for California State Water Resources Control Board. Uh, he's the guy basically who is trying to bolster water conservation at all times. He quit in frustration, and he said he quit in part because uh, there was a very effective chairman when he came, when Newsom came into office. Newsom very quickly sacked that guy and put somebody in more to his liking. It's a theme you hear around Sacramento that independent agencies um, are not as independent as they should be. The governor's office has way too much sway over them. So, I don't know. Um, can it get by environmental laws? We will see. Um, this complicates Newsom's uh, image as a um, as a full fledged environmentalist, obviously. But Lee, the question that comes to me is: If California actually is tasked with something building something big and complicated in ten years, can it do it? Because here we are with high speed rail, which I was approved by voters, I believe, first in two thousand and eight, if I'm not mistaken, or 2010, one or the other. And now we're looking at still trying to complete the first leg of it, the so-called uh, train to nowhere. Um, what makes you think we'd be any more successful trying to build a tunnel? Yeah, the, I mean, we have become the state of getting really, of getting nothing done. We we spend a lot and we don't really have much to show for it. Um, 
you know, we talked a lot about Governor Newsom and his answers to questions always seems to be, well, we spent X billion on this and X billion on that and X hundred millions on this one. He has a big smile on his face. And, um, you know, we don't talk about accomplishments. Right. So the high-speed rail, um, you know, the Reader's Digest version is 2008. It was approved with a $10 billion bond. Um, I mean, voters were essentially sold a bill of goods. It was supposed to <laughs> cost $33 billion. The, the project has been, um, well, I don't want to use the word snake bit because that sounds like bad luck. Um, it hasn't been, with the, the project has been managed just horrendously. Um, oh, star-crossed. <laughs> and uh, star-crossed. And, um, and, and no one, um, including policymakers, will disagree with the fact that it's been run horribly. Um, I think we're on the third or fourth chief executive of the project now. And in the budget, you know, uh, the state legislature just allocated $4.2 billion uh-huh. to contribute to the Merced-Bakersfield-Fresno line. Right. Um, and what was supposed to have been completed in 2020 for $33 billion, we're not going to be able to board a train in Bakersfield and go to Merced until probably 2030. Um, that $30 billion is probably going to be chewed up on the Bakersfield-Merced-Fresno line. Um and Bill, it never, you know, I mean, we can say that it, it never should have been considered because high-speed rail is an out, is, is really an outdated transportation system. Um, it would have made sense to connect places in the Valley to San Francisco and Silicon Valley <clears throat> and places in the Inland Empire with LA um, to take over, to, you know, to provide commuting alternatives than uh, to the car. But Bill, um, I was speaking this morning just coincidentally with uh, Senator Brian Dolly, who's going to be running for governor in this fall against right. Newsom. He has a, you know, he has a, 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 he has a steep hill to climb. But um, you know, when we talked about high-speed rail, uh, he just shook his head and said, you know, my my colleagues on the Democratic side are telling me, well, we've done too much already to, to just drop it now. <laughs> and, and he said, well, no, you have to look at it from the standpoint, does it make sense as an investment going forward? And, and they simply just either couldn't or wouldn't get their, their arms around that. And Bill, it, this is going to, this is now looking to be a $200 million per mile project. Uh, and that cost I just gave you is almost certainly too low. It probably will come in closer to $300 million per mile. And the last cost benefit assessment I took a look at, um, and then just to back up, every major public project has to be has to undergo a cost benefit analysis. The whole idea is supposed to be the benefits exceed the costs. And there's a lot of there's a lot of details involved with that. But that said, in 2014 was, I think, the last cost benefit analysis done for California high speed rail. Right. Those who performed it calculated $80 billion in benefits uh-huh. next to about $50 billion in costs in 2014. Well, I guarantee you that if a new cost benefit study was done today, and, and I urge Senator Dolly to call for that, not that it would get much attention within the Senate, but perhaps there's a requirement within the bond covenant that that has to be conducted. Um, there's not $80 billion worth of benefits um, because the project has been delayed so much because those 220 mile per hour trains, they're not gonna be there. Dolly told me that there's a real chance that these might be diesel trains, not 220 mile per hour electric trains. Um, and an enormous amount of the benefits that are being that are being calculated are coming from carbon emission cost savings and reductions in travel time. Well, you know, we no longer have those 220 mile an hour trains. We're going to have 90 mile an hour diesel diesel trains. Um, and guess what, Bill? By the time this thing actually, if it ever does, if it ever does get off the assembly line, fossil fuel powered cars are not going to be sold in California anymore. Um, so the, the whole thing is really becoming an anachronism. Um, and at some level, it's uh, it's uh, 
it's a sad illustration of what's happened within the state. We are going to burn up just so much in terms of resources for this. Uh, resources that could have been used for so many other legitimately worthwhile projects and building a mile of train rail that would be costing 200 to 300 million dollars per mile. Right. So, per so mile. the irony of uh, the irony here, Lee, is that to fund uh, the construction of high-speed rail, uh, lawmakers in Sacramento had to pull a fast one, and the fast one was saying that by running this trail up and train up and down the state, you're going to taking people off the highway, so you're actually saving uh, emissions. So therefore, we'll justify taking revenue used for, under the guise of carbon taxes and apply that to it. So a diesel train would not. Uh, I would uh, advise our listeners uh, if they'd like, if they're interested more about this, to go to a uh, a publication called California Globe, which uh, very quietly does very good work covering Sacramento. It's from the, uh, the right. And uh, they ran a very clever piece the other day, Lee and Jonathan, saying, okay, if high-speed rail is going to cost $100 billion, which is the current estimate, and those estimates always you know, creep up even more, but they just threw out $100 billion for argument's sake. They said, here's what we could do with $100 billion in California. Let me read a few to you guys, because these are actually rather, rather telling. Number one, that could cover the entirety of the EDD fraud-generated debt, plus leave about $70 billion aside for when, if not, the unemployment agency gets fleeced again and again and again. Bullet point number two, at about $700,000 per 500-square-foot unit. Yes, that's going price. Now, every homeless person in the state would be given a free apartment. What else can you do with $100 billion? The Salton Sea could be restored every decade until the year 2300. San Diego could get three, not just one, but three floating airports. The entire shortfall in the CalSTRS teacher pension could be funded, or just most of the CalPERS shortfall. The state could provide free insulin to f- for four years to every diabetic Californian, and the list goes on. So, Lee and Jonathan, I think we can make a pretty good argument here that there are better uses of $100 billion in California. <laughs> better uses of $100 billion. Um... And Bill, just to, um, the icing on the cake is that when I looked in detail at the numbers that were put out about California high-speed rail, when I looked in detail at the cost-benefit study, um, Bill, do you know what's not included in the costs? The life cycle costs of replacing rail. And those costs are incredibly high. Those rail last, I don't know, the life, the life of that rail is about 10 years, is my understanding. And when the costs are being allocated to decide whether it's a worthwhile public project, the people who did that omitted the costs uh, of replacing rail, replacing stations, of maintaining, taking care of maintaining those stations, taking care of depreciation. Um, my understanding is that those are not in the calculations. Um, and um, you know, Bill, we can't we can't really. Uh, I guess we can't do a California on your mind without uh, without talking about the governor, but, um, and I don't know if we're going to go to the governor next or not, but um, when the governor thinks about 2024, um, this is a project that's not going to look very, this is not going to look very positive for him. Not that, not that he's, not that this is his fault. It's been going on for 14 years, but nevertheless, um, a lot of this is occurring under his watch. Yeah, actually, you know, Lee, when we look at this, I focus on his predecessor, the other governor, Jerry Brown, because Jerry, the Jerry, the wise Jerry, the elder, Cincinnatus coming back uh, from the from the farm to run Rome again. Uh, we always view Jerry as this great pragmatist. And Jerry had a chance to kill this thing. And Jerry just dug in on it for reasons that I will never quite understand. Hopefully his biographers, his oral historians will get this out of him. But the more it became apparent this thing was just really fatally flawed, the more he was reluctant to give up the ghost. And, you know, ran at high size 2020, but just Jerry Brown should have killed this thing when he had a chance. And Newsom, when he came into office, remember in the first state of the uh, state speech, he gave uh, a very confusing passage about, uh, obviously, this is not going to work. And they had to backpedal from it fiercely, again, because there's a lot of union pushback because, Lee, a lot of union jobs here as well. So, uh, yeah, we started out talking about water and we ended up with high-speed rail. But again, it's the question, can California, which we think of in the fabled Pat Brown years of building roads and water systems, universities, can we really build big things anymore? No, no, we can't. Um... The California high-speed rail was was doomed from the start because it was involving the entire state. And until California decides to, you know, reform, rewrite California Environmental Quality Act, we really can't do much of anything um, that involves a lot of money, that involves a lot of land, that involves a lot of water, um, because it's going to get litigated from here to eternity. 
And, um, and because of that stuff, stuff's just not going to get done. You know, when people ask me, they say, well, why has it been 40 years since California did X, Y, or Z? And it's because, you know, yeah, it's been, it's been 40 years we've been talking about it and there's been lawsuits for it for 40 years, almost always based on environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the subject of hospitality. Uh, the California state legislature is currently uh, considering SB 930, which would extend closing time for bars in seven California cities, and I'll list them San Francisco, Fresno, Oakland, Cathedral City, Palm Springs, Coachella, and West Hollywood from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, Lee, is this the right way about going stimulating about going about stimulating uh, uh, the hospitality industry? Well, there's um, there's certainly a demand among uh, among younger people. I mean, I can't tell you the last time I was up beyond two a.m. or <laughs> was up beyond beyond midnight. Um, but there's a uh, there's a demand among people to be able to you know uh, to be able to enjoy nightlife and you know beyond the two a.m. closing time. You look at Europe, um, at least before COVID. Pubs, bars, nightclubs uh, would close at three, four. Discos would remain open until until daylight. So, if the demand's there, then there's a legitimate reason to say, "Yeah, people want to do this, and if businesses want to do this, yeah, let's go ahead and let them do this." This presupposes there's not going to be a lot of negative consequences coming from it. So, people who might live next to that disco or that West Hollywood bar may not be as happy about that. Um, and, you know, there's an old, what, what, what's the old saw, Bill? Is it something like uh, nothing good ever happens after midnight? That okay. might be nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. So, yeah, there might be some legitimate safety concerns as well. Um, but if people want to do it and business can do it and it can be done safely, then, yeah, why not? Yeah, so this is the brainchild of Scott Weiner, a uh, Republic, uh, Democratic lawmaker from San Francisco, who says this is uh, justified because COVID has ravaged the sector. And he's got a point. But uh, Mr. Weiner was pushing for this in 2018 when the aforementioned Jerry Brown stepped in and vetoed a similar message, which would have uh, extended closing time in Los Angeles and Sacramento. It was even more focused program. Uh, one thing about Jerry Brown, I do miss. He always had great veto messages, and I particularly like the one he did for this. Uh, he said, quote, I believe we have enough mischief from midnight to 2 a.m. without adding two more hours of mayhem. Uh, uh, this, to, to me, gentlemen, this is just a matter of common sense. Um, you keep a bar open till four o'clock in the morning. People are going to drink longer. Um, they're going to you know, get in their cars in a more inebriated state. Uh, good things are not going to ensue. And just imagine you're in a different part of Los Angeles or the Bay Area where your bar closes you know, close to 2, 1.30 in the morning, you're going to hop in your car and drive elsewhere. Uh, so you're doing extra driving, you're doing extra drinking, just good things are not going to happen uh, coming out of this. Now, the question is, what does Gavin Newsom do? Uh, unlike Jerry Brown, he has a background in the hospitality sector. He is a, a, a you know, product of wineries and uh, restaurants and hotels and so forth. So maybe he is sympathetic to this. But boy, it just does seem to kind of fail the question of common sense, which is that, again, as you mentioned, Lee, what good comes about from having people on the street at four o'clock in the morning? <laughs> um, you know, Bill, uh, the, uh, just as a sidebar on that, I sent out a tweet earlier today uh, <clears throat> about San Francisco and about how San Francisco was going to be spending nearly $40 million to try to bring people back to a downtown that in some ways looks like a ghost town. And one of the, what well, some of these dollars were gonna to go to paid um, city ambassadors who would be greeting people as they got off the BART subway system and saying, hello, welcome to San Francisco. Do you need directions? So, you know, where you wanna to go to, you know, you wanna go find the nearest cable car stop here, I'll, I'll help you with that. Right. Um, and of course, you know, the real problem with Cal- uh, San Francisco downtown is that it's over the top high costs. Um, there's sadly, there are drug abusers on, on, on many street corners. Um, <clears throat> it's become an unsafe location with a lot of crime. Um, and one person responding to that tweet sent me a, uh, sent me a message <clears throat> showing Gavin Newsom. Um, in 2019, in talking about homelessness and, uh, and drug abuse, he talked about, well, you know, the idea that we have to be um, clean and sober was just the damnedest worst thing we ever tried to teach people. Myself, I like to have a glass of wine, you know, when I watch the evening news. Um, we can't expect people to live by these uh, these extreme laws. Um, so, Bill, when you say, uh, when you say, hey, 
keep the bar, you know, keep the bar closing time to 2 a.m. Gavin, uh, Gavin seems to be on the other side of that. Um, so I'll be interested to see what he does. Um, and uh, again, when 2024 rolls around and, uh, and if Gavin decides to throw his hat in the ring, I think that will be a piece of video that the other side will, will want to play time and again. It'll, I think that will be the gift that keeps on giving for them. Now, at least somebody who could use a drink right now is Barbara Ferrer, who is the uh, very uh, entrenched and uh, troubled uh, director of uh, health at uh, Los Angeles County. Uh, she's uh, in hot water right now. Uh, actually, the Los Angeles Daily News wants her fired. They just did an editorial on this. She apparently is making COVID decision based in part upon studies done by her daughter, which sounds fine, except her daughter has no background in healthcare policy. So problem number one. Problem number two is the good Dr. Ferrer. She has no background in, in healthcare. Also, she's not an MD. Her doctor comes from being a, a PhD in social welfare at Brandeis, which is just the person I want calling my COVID shots in Los Angeles. Ken, if you will. Uh, here's the problem. She's in Lee. I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Los Angeles County seems hell-bent on reimposing a mask mandate. Uh, they're doing this just based strictly on numbers and rising uh, uh, numbers of COVID cases in Los Angeles County. Uh, getting back to our, our theme here about the death of common sense, though, you actually ask, okay, how many people are going to the hospital over COVID? Um, they asked this question in the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center the other day. Um, the doctors there said they have 30 patients with COVID in their hospital. However, only three of them were admitted because of the complications of the virus. So this thing is, in short, it's not killing people in Los Angeles, but she's looking at statistics and deciding once it passes a certain number, we'll go back to masks. Well, it sounds simple enough, Lee, but here's the problem. Um, several cities in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, El Segundo, Pasadena, Long Beach, have already said that they will not enforce an indoor mask mandate if one is implemented. So what's Los Angeles going to do? And it gets even worse, Lee. Um, there are actually parents who are prepared to sue the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors that if the mask mandate returns, uh, they will not have their kids masked. So now we have uh, just uh, another case of possible civil disobedience like the truckers here. What's Los Angeles going to do, Lee, if they impose a mask mandate and people don't intend to go along the mandate. Yeah, I think they're just going to have to look the other way. Yeah. Because as you pointed out, Barbara Ferrer is, um, based on her background, she's not qualified for the position she is in. She's uh, She has a PhD in social work. Uh, right. She doesn't have a medical background. Um, you know, Bill, and neither do I. So, so, but, but nevertheless, that won't, that won't stop me from, um, from offering the following, um, the following statistic I saw from a study, uh, I believe it was in Nature, um, which indicated that current vaccines we have are now basically no use whatsoever under the under the uh, under the Omicron variant that we're seeing right now. Um, and Bill, you're absolutely right about severity of the current variant and whether and how much of that is due to the fact that people have been vaccinated and that so many people have been exposed to the virus, many of them have been asymptomatic. Um, but right now the severity of COVID is, is probably less than the flu. Right. And when flu season comes along, we don't force, we don't force max, masks on people. So I think from a public health standpoint, from a medical standpoint, um, it appears to be very difficult to justify. Um, so if LA County decides to go to, to go in that direction, uh, I mean, I hope they don't because they're going to lose on this. And <laughs> you don't want to, you know, you don't want to step on the playing field if you know you're absolutely going to lose. But I think they're going to absolutely lose on this. And the best they will they will find out they can do after a couple of weeks of it blowing up in their face is they're just going to have to try to quietly walk away from it. Uh, to close out on Dr. Ferrer, by the way, if you go to her website, Los Angeles County Health Department, uh, you see her listed her priorities. Priority number one, she lists Lee, advancing racial equity and strengthening community. Priority number two, uplifting mental health wealth and wellness. And then finally, priority number three, after many, many paragraphs of the other two topics, building a COVID-19 response and elevating the essential workforce. So up is down and down is up in Los Angeles. <laughs> the rabbit hole is alive and well. It's not just in it's not just in Alice in Wonderland. Just come to come to Los Angeles. Well, actually, come to any coastal California city, and you'll pretty much find the same thing. Bill, let's talk about your California on your mind column this week. Uh, you explained the peculiarity of Sacramento not advocating for an early spot in the presidential primary calendar or asking for preference uh, for the 2024 Democratic National Convention to be hosted in any of the major um, 
liberal metropolitan areas in California, Los Angeles, or San Francisco. Uh, and so it sort of contradicts Gavin Newsom's recent actions running ads in Florida and Texas and, and to contrast their lack of morals to progressive virtues in the Golden State, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, and this is what caught my eye. Um, for all of the attention that he has received uh, from running um, the, uh, the the cable TV spot in uh, Florida, it was only $100,000 uh, buy. It wasn't a big buy by any means, but the symbolism outweighed the actual impact. Or then he, uh, then he later ran newspaper ads in Texas uh, going after uh, – uh, Governor Abbott there. Um, it's elevated Newsom in this regard. I, I saw a poll today. It was uh, put out. Um, uh, let me find the poll here for you. I just lost it for a second. Uh, anyway, sur- it was a survey by News Nation Decision Desk Headquarters. Uh, poll asked Democrats for their preference if Joe Biden doesn't run for a second term. Here are the results. Kamala Harris finished first with 31 percent. Gavin Newsom was second with 17 percent, followed by Bernie Sanders at uh, 13% and Pete Buttigieg at uh, 10%. What that tells us, fellows, is that Newsom's strategy is succeeding in this regard. He is winning the battle of the great mention, as they call it, that he is getting into Democrats' minds over what he is doing. He's looking like presidential timber. But what got me thinking about this, Lee and Jonathan, was the next step. It's not just enough to bash the red states. It's to show off your state, because if you're going to run as a governor, that's your message invariably. I will do for America as I did for my state. So if you're Gavin Newsom and you really want to drive the process through California, why not either A, move California up in the process to make it an early state, or B, make it the showcase state, the showcase city, Los Angeles or San Francisco, for the Democratic nomination? Well, the Democratic National Committee is uh, entertaining uh, states that want to be in the first five. 16 states are competing for this overall. California is not one of them. Uh, meanwhile, the Democratic National Committee is coming down to making a choice about what the host city will be in 2024. The choices are Atlanta, New York, Houston, and Chicago. No Los Angeles, no San Francisco. L.A. hosted the Democrats in 2000 and 1960 with John Kennedy. San Francisco um, had the uh, dubious distinction of uh, being the Walter Mondale site in 1984, which spawned the San Francisco values uh, being used by Republicans. So this is what got me curious. The governor gets a lot of mileage out of his self-promotion, but he's not promoting California necessarily at the same time. Uh, a final note on this, Lee, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, Jerry Roberts is a longtime California political observer. Is a journalist in San Francisco. He and uh, the late Phil Tronstein uh, founded a great website called CalBuzz. Uh, for years, they uh, took swipes at Newsom. They called him Prince Gavin, just kind of a shot, the fact that he was not the king of California, but just kind of the, the prince in waiting, if you will. Uh, when um, this all started playing out Newsom presidential prospects. Uh, Roberts went on his Twitter account and he said the following quote, Prince Gavin would be king, would lose 40 states. Um, 40 states is an interesting number. First of all, not too many presidential candidates lose 40 states. And the last Democrat to lose 40 states would be Michael Dukakis back in 1988. And this is an interesting parallel to Gavin Newsom in this regard. Why did Michael Dukakis lose? Well, in part because he had the personality of uh, vanilla ice cream, which is problem number one. Uh, But secondly, the Bush campaign just dissected the man. They First of all, uh, they just told you that he was too liberal for America's tastes. They said it was too lax on criminal justice. We all remember Willie Horton and the prison furlough issue. And then they did a pretty good job of saying that he does a crappy job of running his home state. And they had you believe that he was responsible for a polluted Boston Harbor. Lee, very easy to see Republicans doing the same thing to Gavin Newsom along those very lines. A, he's out of touch with the rest of America. This has always been an Achilles heel of Newsom. Back in 2004, remember, he was a proponent of same-sex marriage. It killed John Kerry's campaign in Ohio, cost him the presidency. Newsom was years ahead of the rest the party. Uh, you can argue some issues. He's the same same situation now. He's years ahead of where maybe the mainstream will be. Um, secondly, you could go after him on the crime issue in California. And then thirdly, in terms of management in California, we just talked about high-speed rail, homelessness, the list goes on of things. Lee, it just seems to me that as a, he may be very telegenic. He may give a good speech. He may be the antithesis of Joe Biden in terms of being uh, energetic. But boy, California is easy pickings. California is easy pickings. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, when, if you want to talk about lobbing up a softball, there's uh, 50 of them that one can throw to DeSantis um, or whoever else would be on the Republican side for this. Um, and Bill, you mentioned a bunch of them. Homelessness, housing prices. Um, a million Californians right now don't have access to safe water. Um, I mean, just the list, the list goes on and it's, and, and there's a level of unacceptability. It's, these aren't partisan issues. Um, these are just common sense, 
functionality of government? Um, are tax dollars being used efficiently and wisely? Are they being used to provide Californians with the public goods and services they, that they want and need? And you look at California and it's just, the, the answer is just a big, big no with a lot of exclamation marks. Um, Bill, I was going to ask you, um, when you mentioned the, 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 the poll results regarding Harris mm-hmm. and Sanders and Newsom, you know, I was thinking about that and I thought, well, you know, Sanders is going to be over 80. Um, and actually, I, I, uh, I saw him. I testified um, to the Senate Finance Committee last week. Sanders is, is not on that committee, I don't believe. But I saw him later uh, in the Senate dining room. I was having lunch. Uh, and a couple of tables over, Sanders is having lunch. And, um, you know, God bless him, but um, he is he is old. <laughs> he looks he looks old. He's this, uh, you know, he's just this stooped over guy. Um, and the idea of an 80 year old effectively running for president, I'm just thinking, no, that's not going to that's not going to work. And right. then I thought of Harris and Harris on the last poll I looked at. Harris has um, only 37 percent approval. And of that 37%, I think only 14 is strongly approved. Mm. And I try to think, well, if she actually was had a lot of responsibilities, <laughs> what would her approval rating be? I mean, given what she has been handed, um, she hasn't really moved the needle. So then I thought, well, you know, how much of this regarding California and the DNC and uh, primaries and so forth, how much of this do you think is strategic from the standpoint that if Harris was to look bad in California, um, you know, how much of that might just, would just completely sink her if California was going to be early on the, early on the ticket? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a point I didn't mention. Uh, you know, first of all, Democrats balk at the idea of early primary, presidential primaries that they have in the past uh, because you get a situation where you have a vote in February and then they don't want their primaries um, in February. They don't want to have that you know, awkward time between February and November. They'd rather hold out till June. Uh, but you raise a great point with Kamala in this regard, and this is something I got into in my column. Uh, one reason why California would be a very good early primary state is because if you had a, uh, if you had a showdown between Newsom as the incumbent governor, Kamala Harris as the uh, incumbent vice president, who has been on a California statewide ballot three times already, once, uh, twice as attorney general, once as U.S. Senator, no, excuse me, four times now, uh, twice as AG, once senator, and once as VP. She doesn't like for name recognition. Uh, so she would run. And then I would throw a third person in there, Lee, and that is Ro Khanna. I don't know if you have very many dealings with Congressman Khanna, but this gets to the Bernie Sanders point. Uh, Bernie Sanders is 14 months older than Joe Biden. Um, he comes across better on television than Biden does. But the fact is, if we're going to have a conversation about a, about a you know, geriatric politics, Bernie Sanders is front and parcel, parcel of that. Rokana would be a, a very obvious heir apparent to Bernie. In fact, I think he was his national co-chair in 2016 or 2020. Anyway, in California, Lee, you would have this very interesting showdown among Democrats where you would have um, be like going to the gas station. You use a very bad California metaphor uh, in kind of three grades of octane and that you would have kind of the, the regular blend, which is Kamala. She's very much kind of the traditional today Democrat, if you will. Uh, not really that forceful on the issues. You know, the Biden administration will not go to the mat on things like the Senate filibuster. Newsom would be the um, the premium grade, but not the, or the plus grade, I guess, where he talks a much more woke game, but yet you don't find him following through on, for example, you know, universal single payer health care. But then you have Kana, who is, you know, high test in terms of socialism and Bernie and let's go after corporations and tax the bejesus out of people and so on and so forth. It'd be kind of a great referendum. And it raises exactly the point you did mention, Lee, which is that if Kamala Harris cannot win her home state, that she's probably done as a national politician. Conversely, if Gavin Newsom cannot win his home state, he's probably done as a national politician too. So just as having the Republicans go early in Florida with DeSantis and Trump slugging it out there, you know, whoever survives that goes on, whoever loses is done. It'd be a very good way for the Democrats to kind of winnow things and work things out. Yeah, it's uh, California's interesting position right now um, because if I think about, you know, Bill, when you mentioned, you know, Gavin Newsom, some think he might lose 40 states and that Dukakis was the last politician to lose 40 states in a presidential election. Um, it is just so easy to poke at what California has become. I mean, almost 
as a caricature. It would literally be like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, so when I look at the when I look at the three names um, that are coming up, Harris and Newsom and Sanders, um, I look at that list and just think I don't think any of those people are electable. Now, on the other hand, it depends on who the opponent is. Um, but there's just a lot of aspects to all those voters that um, are just going to be unappealing uh, or potentially many dimensions to those candidates that will be unappealing and just not a person for a variety of reasons that people are going to want to be uh, to be the president. Um, so, yeah, California is an interesting position here. Um, and um, I'm, you know, if I was a betting man, I'm not. But if I was a betting man. I would say Harris uh, is not going to be the candidate. If anything, I think she looks worse now uh, that she's been vice president. Of course, that gives her name recognition. But from the standpoint of being a functional politician, somebody who can get things done, somebody who can be a leader who has a vision, um, whatever she was able to convince people of in 2020, um, I think that's largely gone by the wayside. Um, so... Yeah, so from, I think from a strategy point of view, I think the DNC would be wise to let Republicans go without way with Florida and hold off on California. Yeah, the final note about a Democratic primary uh, in California, Lee, uh, California does not engage in crossover voting, uh, say, as they do in New Hampshire, where you can vote um, on you know either primary if you want to. Uh, if you're an in a Republican, you have to stay on the Republican side, Democrats, Democrats, and so forth. But independents, uh, NPPs, as we call them in California, no party preference, Lee, they can actually cross over and vote if they fill out a form, a special ballot, a special crossover ballot. So I'd be very curious as to how these various candidates would play that if Newsom would want to change the law to maybe open it up and let other people cross over. Imagine if you're a Republican voter in California, Lee, and you had the choice of playing in the Democratic field and deciding who you want to elevate. Do you want to elevate Ro Khanna or Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris? That's a that's a lot to chew on. Yeah, that's a lot to chew on. And Bill, just as a postscript to that, um, Rick Caruso, billionaire, businessman, developer in California, um, who is running for mayor in Los Angeles, uh, chose to run as a Democrat. Um, re Longtime Republican, I think. Um, and he suddenly decided, well, I'm not going to get any traction as a Republican, and I'm not going to get any traction as an independent or no party preference. Um, so he crossed over and suddenly have Rick Caruso, uh, conservative Democrat. That's right. Actually, so Caruso was a Republican at one time. He then became an independent during the Trump era. And then he switched to a Democrat right before as uh, soon as right before he filed for mayor. Uh, and it's about viability in the primary. He wanted to get as many votes as he could. And he figured much easier with a D on the end instead of an I. Uh, as a student of politics, I hate to see this because I've always been in love with the notion of having an independent running a position of prominence in California. I, I look back and wish Arnold Schwarzenegger had done this in 2003. I think he had the possibility to have been elected as an independent because he was Arnold Schwarzenegger, just so larger than life. And boy, what an interesting position to govern from in California when you're not beholden to one party or the other and don't have to take on the respective baggage. And so kind of sad to see Caruso do that. But yeah, so, you know, week goes by and we have to talk about Gavin Newsom as presidential politics. But, you know, there he is being mentioned. And this is the effectiveness of the strategy. He keeps doing this. The question is going to be, and we'll close this out, uh, enough Newsom talk. But what happens if Democrats do get kicked to the curb in November? Uh, I suspect he's going to double down on his efforts. He's probably going to start lecturing Democrats on the follies of the ways, probably talk up California more. But before that, I'd be curious to see Lee and Jonathan if he actually goes anywhere and campaigns in person. And I'd qualify that by saying going to states where they're actually competitive races, not safe blue races. For example, will he go to Georgia and campaign for Stacey Abrams? It's one thing to go to launch an ad in Florida and take a pot shot at Ron DeSantis, but another need to show up in Atlanta and try to turn out the vote for your candidate. And that'll be one mark about how well welcome Newsom really is in Democratic circles and how much of an asset he really is. If you see these candidates who are in very difficult uphill races like Stacey Abrams's, if they want his help or not. They'll certainly take the money from California, but do they want him to parachute in and bring California with them? Is it Billy, in your view, is there a risk if he goes to a place like Georgia? No, you know, nobody's heard of him. And it turns out it turns out bad. Nobody shows up to hear him. Newspapers talk about, hey, what's this California guy doing out of here? He knows nothing about our state. Um, is there much of a risk for him politically if he did something like that? 
Yeah, uh, the risk is simply this: if California really starts to just you know deteriorate in various ways, if there are real crises out here, wildfires are a good example of this. And Newsom's already faced some of the the heat on this, where little things pop up and you know they merit his attention. And what's he doing? He's you know he's engaging in these silly you know his arguments with uh, with uh, DeSantis and. Uh, and uh, Greg Abbott. Uh, so a bit of a ding there. Uh, I'm not so sure that, you know, the overall record matters that much. Uh, history's fraught with Democrats and Republicans who campaigned in off years or midterms. Didn't do that well for their surrogates, but that didn't stop their presidential ambitions. But it does lead to the idea of a distracted governor, as I like to call it. And he's just not paying attention to the job in Sacramento. And you'll see that show up, I think, in his approval ratings, which have always been kind of soft for Gavin Newsom. He thrives when he is, you know, uh, position as a foil against Donald Trump or now against Ron DeSantis. Uh, he struggles when he's on his own. It's a referendum on Gavin Newsom because this gets back into something we've seen here in California. We've been polling California for years at Hoover Lee. And what you find is that California is notoriously in a wrong track direction. Majority of voters think the state's going the wrong way and they hold the governor partially responsible for that. And that'll lead to the awkwardness of actually running for president while he is the governor of California trying to do two things at the same time. Uh, Ronald Reagan tried it in 1968 in a very kind of tricky way where he never announced his candidacy, but just went around the country and showed up in a lot of places and made himself very available. He thought he could get into the convention. Uh, Jerry Brown tried it twice while he was in uh, the governor's office. My boss, Pete Wilson, tried it in 1995. I think it lasted about six weeks. It was a disaster. Uh, history does not shine favorably upon California governors who lead the state to campaign elsewhere. So maybe, maybe Newsom knows something we don't, but it's just very hard to run the state and also be out of state at the same time. As always, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Bill. Always fun. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.